welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzymski. Greetings and welcome to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff, and I'm sitting here in the luxurious corner booth at the Catholic Cafe. Tom Doran is sitting beside me as always. Tom? Hello, Deacon Jeff. How are you doing, Tom? Fantastic. How are you? I'm doing just great. Good. What so, you got cooking today? Well, today we are cooking up something pretty good. I think a lot of people have talked to me and asked me questions. Whenever they're talking about the Catholic faith, mm-hmm. those questions will center around priestly celibacy. You know, I have a good friend. That is his one biggest hang-up with the Catholic Church. Well, what we'd like to do is have a show sort of focused on priestly celibacy, Great. the concept of celibacy, chastity, what that means, mm-hmm. and uh, what it means for the Catholic Church, and what it can mean for everyone listening. Uh, and to do that, we thought we'd bring in an expert. Excellent. We thought we'd bring in a celibate person. Perfect. We have Father Anthony here, and Father Anthony is one of the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal. Father Anthony, welcome to the luxurious corner booth. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Now, Thank I know you. you're not used to being in luxury because you guys are, uh, <laughs> That's you know, right. fairly, you fairly yeah. downplay Nothing the luxury luxurious. thing. luxurious. That's nope, exactly nope. right. So he's actually not sitting in the booth. He's pulled a chair up because <laughs> he refuses to sit in the luxurious corner There's booth. There's some nails on the chair, too. You know, I just... <laughs> Very it's, a, it's a medieval thing, you know, St. Francis <laughs> loved Oh, God penance. bless you. <laughs> Father Anthony, so I know that a lot of people probably ask you lots of questions about your faith and how you mm-hmm. practice your faith. And what you feel called to do in your faith. And one of those things is usually always about celibacy. We have lots of issues today. We've, we've seen in the news lots of things going on. And people think that maybe celibacy is the, the cause or the problem. Uh, what say you about celibacy? What does celibacy mean to you? Wow. Well, you know, so many things. Whenever I explain uh, chastity uh, in terms of the vow or a celibate priesthood, I always bring up St. Paul. 1 Corinthians 7. And it's, it, it can be very, very helpful. And, it, and you're right, Deacon. It's the hardest thing for a young person to understand. We were just visiting uh, classrooms here in Memphis, Tennessee, and we explained to the kids, you know, our way of life, uh, poverty, chastity, and obedience, no money, no honey, and a boss. <laughs> and, you know, they, the kids understand, okay, poverty, we can, we can understand, you know, okay, it's hard without my Xbox and my plasma TV. Obedience, I have to do what my teachers. But the chastity one, or the celibate life, is one that leaves them scratching their heads, along with the rest of the world. Usually some people like, boy, I like your costume or, or your right. habit, your Franciscan <laughs> habit. Where can I get one of those? Well, you just have to make three promises. <laughs> okay, what, what, what is that? Well, poverty and obedience, and I leave chastity to the end. You know, I can do that, I can do that, and then I say, Chast- I'll see you later. Yeah, you exactly. Know? It's a really <laughs> hard one to get. And, and for myself, I always start with St. Paul and First Corinthians 7. Let's read a little bit of that. Um, in First Corinthians chapter 7, let's look at verses 7 and 8. St. Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own special gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is well for them to remain single as I do. So St. Paul is saying, I'm single, and and so should you be single, if you can, right? That's right. He goes into more detail in uh, verses 32 through 35. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly affairs, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried woman or girl is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. 
But the married woman is anxious about worldly affairs, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, not to put restraint on you. You know, most people would look at that and say, that is a restraint. That's right. Because right? you, you get all the time people say, but it's unnatural. Mm-hmm. It's unnatural to be celibate. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bible says, be fruitful and multiply. So you're, you're not being fruitful and multiplying. And, and so how do you answer that for yourself? Sure. For, for myself, I would answer it the same way that I would answer it for the Lord, who was celibate, right? right. And St. Paul, who was celibate. And a whole host of Christians who were following in the generations after that. You're absolutely right. It's not natural. It's supernatural. What about our Lord's life was natural? It was supernatural, right? What, what is natural about grace and, and salvation? It's supernatural. And we cannot explain it. And it's why the kids in the world scratch their heads about this one, because it's a supernatural gift the church teaches. It's a supernatural gift. And without that gift, you cannot live a celibate life. We all know, we all struggle uh, in, in this world that is, there's so many images, uh, billboards, buses, movies, TVs, internet, that are completely bombarding us with sexual images. And we all have to fight that struggle to be pure. It's a supernatural struggle, though. Without the grace of the Lord, we just cannot do it. And that's how I explain it for myself, uh, it kind of in the footsteps of uh, St. Paul and the Lord. It does, and how I break down 1 Corinthians 7 uh, with those, those, uh, the first two verses uh, and then the later verses is this. St. Paul is talking about people trying to live in the world without divided hearts, without distractions, right? And f- for the priest and the religious priest, if you will, or the religious, they dedicate themselves in a special way. We say consecrate themselves in a special way to the Lord. Do you remember how deacon, remember how the deacons arose in those Acts of the Apostles? There was a need. Right. What was that need? It was the need for the apostles. Um, they, they needed help with the administrative work of the church. That's right. The apostles wanted to focus on prayer and doing the offering, doing the Mass. That's right. They and wanted the, to, uh, the worship of the Lord, the Scriptures, so that they could give that, that word to the people, you know, kind of. Kind of, in a way, uh, the role of the prophet. The prophet listens to what the Lord speaks to him, and then he speaks that to the people. Well, if there's many distractions going on in your life, and it may not be the best word, distractions, because uh, you don't want to say a job or providing for my family or my kids or my wife are distractions. My wife would be upset if I called her a distraction. (laughs) Very very well. (laughs) So we don't want to say distractions, you know. But they do divide your time and your energy and your attention. So, like, what St. Paul is saying here is that, well, if I have the good, a natural good of a wife and children, I have to provide for them as a, as a father, as a provider. I have to have a job. I have to pay the mortgage. I have to pay the car bills. I have to take Johnny to swim practice. I got to take Susie to Girl Scouts, and so on and so on and so on. All good things. But at the end of the day, how much time do I really have to give? And for myself as a Franciscan, uh, we, we give our lives to the church, but in a special way to the poor. If I had my, my own good family, a, a wife and children, I wouldn't have as much time and probably energy to give to them, to give to the poor, um, to give to traveling 
of preaching the gospel because I should be at home. That's my vocation, taking care of my family. I wouldn't have that time to do that. And so now having the vow of chastity, uh, priestly celibacy, that promise of celibacy at priesthood, they have the opportunity. It doesn't mean it always happens. You have to choose right. it. They have the opportunity to give themselves completely. And, and, it's, and it's the model of our Lord Jesus. It's the life that he chose. So, you know, when, uh, sometimes we'll have pro- our Protestant brothers and sisters, they will really get in our face and question us. I had this happen to me in Harlem one time and really challenged me in a biblical way uh, about, that, about the teaching of, of celibacy. And I said, well, what about St. Paul? And what about our Lord? That's the life that they chose, you know? Let's read what Jesus had to say about this in, in the Gospel of Matthew. In chapter 19, Jesus said to them, Not all men can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to receive this, let him receive it. So he doesn't say it's wrong not to have that relationship. He says it's, it's, it's a gift that's given to some people. Some people can't receive it. But if you can receive it, let him receive it. Let him receive it. That's right. And it's a gift that's given by the Lord. It's a mysterious thing that happens. You know, People ask you, how did, how did your vocation come about? It's a mysterious and it's a supernatural gift that is only given to a few. And so that God may be glorified and souls may be saved. You know, in the sense that we're free to at least have the opportunity, we're free to give of ourselves um, more time, more energy, more uh, intentionally uh, focused, you know, towards a group of people or the church. And, you know, in that we also, one of the, uh, one of the object- objections that Protestants might have, go back to the book of Genesis, mm-hmm. right? It's not good for man to be alone. And as Catholics, we would say, Amen, Alleluia. If a priest is living alone, it's not good. That's right. It's not good at all. Well, what would you say about the hermit? Well, again, it's a supernatural gift, and they are living in in a fuller way that we can understand in the presence of the Lord. They're really not alone. They're experiencing the the presence of the Lord in a different way. But for everyday people, right, it's true. It's not good to be alone. And personally, I think, and it's been my experience, and if we speak pastorally, many and not only Catholic priests, uh, but Protestant ministers, people in general, when they're alone, that's when thing, bad things can come. That's when they can search for consolation in the computer or in the drugs or the alcohol, right? Many of the problems of the scandals that are so, you know, they're so they're bombarded in the newspapers. I truly believe that had those priests had good friends and good shepherds and good people to care for them, uh, they would not have uh, fallen in in that way. And so many people who look at the text about it's not good for a man to be alone have a, maybe a mistaken idea of what the word alone means. And we suddenly, for no reason, we put sort of a sexual meaning or at least a marital embrace meaning to the word alone when really alone just means in community. We're, we're all born into this world to be uh, brothers and sisters and, and to be united in that way and members of the body of Christ, not so much necessarily in a, a marital relationship with all the people we know, but we're together with all the people in the body of Christ. That's right. It's a life-giving community that every person needs, whether it be the family. The child needs a life-giving community. If he doesn't have it, 
all sorts of things will happen to the child. He'll, he'll go search for it in other ways. He will. He will search for that life. And it's, and it's God's intention, and it's, this would be very Catholic kind of theology, that, the, that forming his church, that this would be the conduit, the sacrament, where the life of Christ would come to the world. This is how it comes. Can it come other ways? Yes. I'm, I'm a perfect example of that. I'd, in a way, left the church. I had left my faith. I had, I had no relationship with the Lord. And one day, just reading a book, he spoke to me. And, and I had a radical experience of God and his voice in my life. Well, I guess indirectly it came through the church, right? But normally, I think how God really built his church, that this would be the life-giving uh, instrument to the world. The life would come, especially through the sacraments. Uh, this is how it would come. And he, and he knows how, how he built his church. He gave us the example of the good shepherd. What does the good shepherd do? It's beautiful teaching in the Gospel of John chapter 10. The good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep. Uh, I was saying it. this was the, the Gospel for this, uh, this past Sunday. Uh, I was saying that one sign for the Catholic priesthood that the people would know he's a good shepherd for them is if he does that. He lays down his life for a sheep. And a sign of that is his celibacy. That he would sacrifice that for them. You notice, Deacon, those words are so important uh, that they would they would give that up for the sake of the kingdom of God. It's and it, whenever you see that in any church document or right. referenced, that is always there. It's it's not a in a way you have to make a sacrifice, uh, you know, grit and bear it, you know, and it's just have to plow your way through this. No, you're giving it out of love. That's what Christ. Saint Paul talks it. about rejoicing in his sufferings. Yes, right. Yes. There's a re- there's rejoicing there. There's joy in what you give up. That's right. There's a great joy in what you give up. Again, it's it's something that you have to choose as as married people have to choose to love each other each day. You know, the the first day that you get married, you say yes. You have to say yes every day. It's the same for the priest. It's the same. I suppose, you know, for, for any uh, a minister, a Protestant minister, you have to say yes to give your life for your sheep. Very good. Father Anthony with the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal, and we have more with Father Anthony in just one moment. Before we uh, come back, I want to remind everyone we have a wonderful website, www.thecatholiccafe.com. And also, I'd love you to email me with your questions or your comments. I'm Deacon Jeff at thecatholiccafe.com. And so with that, we'll be right back. And this is another great moment in church history. It is good for them if they remain even as I am. I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about things of the world, how he may please his wife. This passage from St. Paul's letter to the church at Corinth illustrates the teachings of the early church on the value of priestly celibacy. On March 25, 1992, Pope John Paul II gave a special apostolic exhortation on the formation of priests. In this special message, called, I Will Give You Shepherds, the late pontiff gave a stirring explanation on the teaching and practice of priestly celibacy. He wrote, 
but it is undeniable that the priest's life is fully taken up by the hunger for the gospel and for faith, hope, and love for God and his mystery, a hunger which is more or less consciously present in the people of God entrusted to him. In this hunger for the gospel, the priest's life is fully consumed by his love and service to the church. The priest is called to a perfect continence for the love of the kingdom of heaven. John Paul went on, In virginity and celibacy, chastity retains its original meaning, that is, of human sexuality lived as a genuine sign of and precious service to the love of communion and gift of self to others. This nuptial meaning of the body through a communion and a personal gift to Jesus Christ and his church, which prefigures and anticipates the perfect and final communion and self-giving of the world to come. The late Holy Father wrote, In this light, one can more easily understand and appreciate the reasons behind the centuries-old choice which the Western Church has made and maintained, despite all the difficulties and objections raised down the centuries, of conferring the order of presbyter only on men who have given proof that they have been called by God to the gift of chastity and absolute and perpetual celibacy. Celibacy is something that does not take away or isolate the priests, but is something positive, something that brings fruit to his ministry. The late pontiff said, Celibacy, then, is to be welcomed and continually renewed with a free and loving decision as a priceless gift from God. St. John Vianney, patron of priests, pray for us. I'm Bess Trzemski, and this is another great moment in church history. Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. And we're back in the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff, and I'm sitting here with Tom Doring. And Tom and I are are joined uh, by our wonderful guest, Father Anthony, the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal. Father Anthony, you doing okay? Doing great, guys. Well, wonderful. So we're going to continue on with our conversation about celibacy. There are some common sort of, call them misconceptions, but maybe some challenges Mm. where someone will think that, well, if you didn't have celibacy, then you would have naturally more vocations because you'd allow men to be married, and so you'd be able to have a, you'd have a bigger pool to pull your priesthood from, right? You'd have now all these m- married men who would be qualified for the priesthood. Yeah, I've heard that too. Uh, but you know, it, if you look at even our our Protestant brethren, mainline churches, they have a, a decrease in numbers as well among their pastorate. You would you would think, okay, well, the Anglicans they can marry, so there's going to be a lot more. Uh, Anglican married pastors. And it's not true. It's across the board. But, you know, one of the things I'd like to, to come back with as someone brings that to me is that young people who are your pool for vocations to right. the priesthood or, or to a pastorate, young people want a challenging life. You know, in, in England, around King Henry VIII and during the persecution of the church during the end of his years and, and the years in, into England with Queen Elizabeth and things, well, the church was persecuted, and priests were hunted down, and they were hung, drawn, and courted. It was mm. illegal to it be a priest. It was not good to be a Catholic mm-hmm. priest you at You were time. not a popular person if you were a Catholic priest. Well, what did the English Catholics, underground young men, what did they do if they felt the call of the priesthood? They went to Douai, and it was northern France, and there was a seminary there. And you can still go to the seminary there in, in northern France and see these pictures of just incredible numbers. 
The seminary was full, was bustling with vocations, and they knew they would go back to England to serve as priests and be hunted down and killed. And the seminary was full. Our seminaries are empty, relatively speaking. You know, right. it's picking up a little bit. But there is something to be said about a life, an idealistic life, uh, a challenge, a life of sacrifice, to lay down your life. It's, it's kind of bred as the highest ideal, not only of the gospel, but it's, it's written on the human heart as well. I think people mm. are looking for something that's of a moral character that's far above what they experience in the regular world, right? In the secular world, we experience so many bad things, and we learn to be dishonest, we learn to distrust, mm. and we don't throw ourselves into anything. But when you have something as beautiful as what you're talking about here, and a life lived in a Christ-like manner, and it's taken seriously, and it is challenging, that's when you start having people, you have more vocations, you have an increase in vocations based on that, not on the idea that, well, I can also get married, and so now I'll be able to have this and have this, I can have everything. I can have everything. You know, Blessed Mother Teresa, perfect example, living the celibate or chaste life, you know, the vow of chastity, she started out by herself with no money, walks into the slums of Calcutta during the worst times to walk into Calcutta. And 50 years later, she has thousands of young women wanting to follow her. How do you explain that? It's the same for St. Francis at the end of his life. 5,000 men and women following him. And, and it wasn't a life of luxury. It was a hard life. They begged for everything. They owned nothing. They served lepers. Imagine serving lepers without latex gloves, <laughs> without right. medicines, you know. And this was the ideal that these people lived, the ideal of the early uh, Christians as well, those virgin martyrs that the, that the church holds up, St. Cecilia, St. Anastasia, St. Agnes, all those virgin martyrs, that they chose to be celibate. They chose to give that, that heart of theirs to Christ, and they gave up their life for it. And that's why they're held up even in the Mass as the highest ideal of, of you know, to, to lay down your life for Christ. Now, there's also people who will say that, you know, we've seen in the news uh, lots of uh, scandals rocking the church. Not that this is new, but this has been going on for, for a long time. Different scandals have, uh, have rocked the church. But there are a lot of people that think that we would end all of the sex scandals that we're witness to if we would just allow these men to marry and have normal marital relations. Then there wouldn't be this, this need to have these other acting out on certain sexual desires. That's not true at all, is it? No, it's not true. It's, it's not connected. Some people, scientists have said it's about the percentage of 1.8 or 2%. It's about the same amongst Catholic priests as it is the general population for a, a, a child abuse situation. There was an interesting study done uh, from the Department of Education. The Congress uh, asked Carol Shakeshaft of the University of Hostra to lead this uh, on behalf of the Department of Education and the, the policy of no child left behind to, to study uh, child abuse, especially within the school si system. She's not Catholic. But if you do a little Google, you can probably find her, her research online. Well, her findings are very interesting. And she, and she makes the claim with statistics and, and reported, reported uh, cases that a child is 100 times more likely to be abused in a public school than they ever are by a priest. 100 times. Mm. And the cases are is just 
they're exploding among public schools. And yet, that, of course, that's not what we hear in the media, right? right. It's, the media is not going to, to, to put that out. But people have made that connection because it, it gets so much media attention. The priest uh, having uh, accusations or, or having these allegations, uh, that's what gets the attention, not the public school. But in reality, percentage is certainly not... Uh, not equal. It's about equal to the general right. population to say the accusations, you know. So there, we don't really see that connection scientifically. And of course, we don't want to minimize the the anguish, the pain, the suffering that no, that these no. poor uh, children of of God are experiencing in that situation. That's we take right. that very seriously, and the Holy Father takes that very seriously, and and we act on those things as soon as they're That's discovered. Right. But the reality is we have to look at just how frequently they are or are not happening or the accusations are being made. And we see that it's not different just because of celibacy. That's right. That's yeah, right. That's an important thing to note. Now, there was another uh, concept. I know I've seen some priests that will wear a wedding band. And maybe if we'll talk a little bit about the idea that it's not so much priesthood or marriage – Priesthood is really kind of another kind of marriage in a sense in that you're, you're married to the church, right? You're acting in the person of Christ. Christ was the bridegroom and the church is the spotless bride. That's right. Right, And so now you're sort of acting that out as a priest. You're acting in the person of Christ. And so naturally you would be married to the church. That's right. That's and so right. really it's not that you're not married. It's just a different kind of marriage. And you'd call it supernatural. That would be a supernatural marriage. That's right. Absolutely. So you have a family. Mm-hmm. You have people to care for. That's you have right. a flock to care for. That's right. It, and you're, Deacon, you're so right when you said it, it's supernatural. You notice what Jesus said also of when the Pharisees brought the argument about who's married to the lady if she gets married to seven right. successive brothers or whatever in heaven. He says, you know, there is no marriage in heaven. So this relationship of celibacy, the priest, and being married to his flock, if you will, giving his whole life, all his time, all his energy, it's symbolic and it points to heaven as the cross does, as Christ being crucified on the cross as that points to heaven, so does the priest and the wedding band. And for, for us religious, the religious habit, it's a sign for the sisters as well. It's a sign for heaven that there will be no marriage in heaven, right? It's a, it's a natural thing. Father Anthony uh, of the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal, thank you so much for shedding some light on priestly celibacy. And we really appreciate it. We'll come back and see us in the uh, uh, luxurious corner booth. Uh, we'll try to make sure it's not too luxurious for you uh, in the future. <laughs> good, good. Thanks so much, guys. Good to be here. Let's end in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Mm. Heavenly Father, your Son Jesus, as Savior and living example for all Christians, was bridegroom to the church, the spotless bride. Help us to see the value and blessing of celibacy in our priests and all those who are called to live the celibate life. And help those called to the vocation of marriage to live chaste and holy lives that mirror your total gift of self for us. We ask this through Christ our Lord, amen. Mm. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stive, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at The Catholic Cafe. There's always room for one more at our table.